Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about, again, Shu Hadi, this concept. And I'm going to do it kind of generally. And we might have to come back to it again, or maybe more specifically. So, Let's just start with some historical context. Shuhadi has taken many forms in Asian and East Asian thought and practice. It's meant to address a particular problem aimed at a particular ideal. What is the ideal? It is the ability or the capacity or an attained state of cultivation wherein signs of the teaching are no longer visible in the one who is being taught. Or let's put it another way. It is a full integration of the teachings and the student's being. So let, let's kind of think on this for a little bit. And I've given this example in other podcasts and other videos. Let's say you want to learn to dance. You want to learn a particular dance. You're going to start with a particular dance. And it's going to be about learning the right steps at the right time, etc. And maybe we put numbered footprints on the ground so that you learn where to step. Or maybe you're watching the teacher and your teacher is telling you left foot here, then right foot here. Turn your foot at this angle, shift your weight at this angle, etc. And you're going to learn the sequences. But these cultures did not think you as skilled, or let's, put, let's stay positive. They would think you to be more skilled if the observer 
could no longer see the numbered footsteps in your dance. So you can think of the beginner dancer who's still counting their steps or something like that. And you would look at them and go, wow, they're not quite in the moment. They're not quite feeling the music. Seems very cerebral. Okay, that dancer in these cultures is going to be considered less skill. There is a higher skilled dancer where the observer does not recognize the numbered footprints, the teachings, or the teacher. It appears that the person is moving naturally. Now, what is the problem? The problem is that the very obstacle to natural movement or to be a natural dancer, the problem is those footsteps or those dubbered footprints themselves, they're actually in the way. Now, why is that a problem? Because our modern minds might want to go, as is often the case in modern dance, um, just feel the music and just go with whatever you feel like doing. And so you don't ever have numbered footprints. You just go. And we, we would call this you know, spontaneity. But earlier cultures were not after spontaneity per se. They were interested really in a particular spontaneity or better said, in a reconciliation between form and non-form. And so these, this concept, which has many variants, sometimes they're named differently, sometimes they're not clearly spelled out, But throughout the various, what we today would call religious traditions of East Asia, you will see this ideal and this problem being addressed. So we'll stick with the current terminology, Shu Hadi. But we're going to modernize it because if you get a kanji dictionary and you're going to have to get 
a specialized dictionary and you look up these words, you're going to get certain meanings and those things to our modern eyes will not be accurately understood. This is very much akin to when you have the word kokyu and you try to find that kanji and you go breath, okay, breath, but breath... In 500 BCE, China does not mean breath like we mean breath. Or as we've discussed on another podcast, you take Takuan's Mushin, you look up the kanji, you go un or negative or no and mind, and you go no mind, but you're going to be wrong. Because these are specialized words. They are specialized words and ideas belonging within the context of the traditions in which they were used. And your dictionary is not taking that into account. So we're going to come up with a contemporary understanding made up of an amalgam of all these traditions that we're looking to train people but to lose all evidence of the training to cultivate a particular spontaneity to cultivate a particular being spontaneity in and of itself was not the goal So when we talk about Shu, we're going to talk about the teaching or the format or the form. And when we talk about Ha, we're going to talk about the non-form or the deconstruction of form. And when we talk about Ri, we're going to talk about the reconciliation of form and non-form. Let's get rid of some of the difficulties our modern minds have in understanding this concept. Remember that the pre-modern world did not operate with or through the scientific epistemy. And people doing the history of thought really have a gold mine in Aikido. And it's because the founder developed his art with and within a pre-modern epistemology. And the art that his son and the Aikikai and the countless people that now train in it practice Aikido from a modern epistemology.
But this pre-modern epistemology was concentric in nature. It was about discovering patterns and seeing them repeat themselves over and over and over again. It's not enough to say that it, there was a singularity at the heart of this thinking. And that's why I go with the word concentric, because it was simultaneously a singularity and a multiplicity. And so when you look at what appears to be a training problem, like how do I stop dancing by counting in my head? Pre-modern people, O Sensei included, are going to see that simultaneously as what we would call a psychological problem or even a spiritual problem. Meaning you can't solve it just in how you structure your classes. And in particular, you're not going to have a shuhari application take the shape of a kind of progressive training. That's not how it happens. And so to understand that, let's look at a few things that we might be able to see and see how they should actually give us pause. All right, so in terms of our art, we know what would be or what do we know as the spontaneity that is Aikido in kind. We, we already have the word for that. That is Takamusa Aiki. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it would be the ability to do the art spontaneously. So again, not just fight spontaneously. It is to do the art spontaneously. So this goes back to that notion. It's not just a free-for-all. It's really just a reconciliation of form. Or in particular, the reconciliation of an attachment to form, which is a natural byproduct of learning, period. Now, we might have in our modern Aikido this idea of Takamusa Aiki, and we might have what we believe to be the arena in which we can make it manifest or witness it. We'll call that arena Jiyuwaza. But from a historical Shuhadi understanding, what we see in Jiyuwaza is not D. We're only seeing 
shoe. You're only seeing, again, an attachment to form. What does that look like? Well, this is how most of your jiwaza is really restricted. Both in terms, let's say we assign uke a restricted role. Okay, uke, you're only coming in with your overextended two-hand semi-push shoulder grab attempt. And then nage, uh, you just choose one of four forms to do over and over. So you can either shiko under their knees, you can do koki nage, forward or backward, maybe an atemi to the face. So from this traditional point of view, you're just picking forms. It's just plain shoe training. Now, you could not even do that when you first start. You might need two years, one year, maybe up to 10 years. But even after 10 years, you haven't moved to the next stage of, ha, you're still just doing forms. And you might never move out of forms, especially with modern Aikido. Modern Aikido is pedagogically limiting to just doing forms, to just doing Aikido within controlled environments. Now, pre-modern man would know that right off the bat. Now, modern man does not know that. He believes or she believes that somehow the repetition of forms, and very strangely, because in a very non-scientific way, either alchemically or talismanically, apparently, you just repeat the forms somehow, it is supposed to solve for the problem that pre-modern man solved for. Somehow, I keep doing forms, and sooner or later, I'm supposed to move past form, and now I'm spontaneous with form. But we don't see that. Take that same Nage who was doing those three to four techniques. Keep uke restricted to that overextended semi two-handed push shoulder grab attempt. But tell that nage, now you can't do any of those four techniques. You have to do something different. Or change Uke's attack. Do something as silly as tell them you have to come in with your arms crossed now. And you're going to see the inhibition and in movement 
in that nage. Because all they were doing was selecting very quickly amongst form. And it really was the environment that gave the illusion of being spontaneous with the art. You could, of course, turn this up to 11, maximize the intensity or the need for a reconciliation of form and non-form, and tell Uke, hey, come in with whatever you want, counter wherever you want. And you will see that nage that at one point looked very fluid, very free form. And they will do a response or a reaction that no one would call an example of the art. Well, this is a problem that pre-modern martial artists saw right off the bat. And you get these caveats all throughout, as I said, East Asian schools of thoughts and practice. So even within the criticisms that the Taoists had against the Confucians, it was this criticism. You're form specialists. It's not really in you. You're not really of it. You see this in the, the Chan critiques. Against the other Buddhist schools, all their folklore about the person who memorizes sutras. They're just form specialists. There's a gap between what they're training in and who they are. And reading more sutras is never going to bring about a closing of that gap. So doing more ikkyo, doing more nikkyo, it's never going to do it. Nor even, I'm going to change ikkyo, I'm going to change nikkyo. It's just another form. So this is a mistake, and it comes from the idea that shuhari is progressive. So let's say you start with ikkyo, and now I'm going to show you a variation on ikkyo. It's not a variation on ikkyo. It's simply another form. And you can have all the variations you want. You're not going to get rid of the gap. Now, really quickly, as a concentric school of thought and practice, these cultures posited a realm of experience or a world or a cosmos 
that work through the idea that there's this kind of one thing that is beyond everything, behind everything, is the grand potential of everything, is the source of everything, and from there two come, and from two come four, and then it goes on and gives manifest the entirety of reality. Well, nothing ever changes like that. Nothing that, that It's going to keep that model the entire way. Because it's concentric in nature. So, for example, um, from this this one thing that's not even a contrast to the myriad things, come to. And these two, one is uh, uniting, communion, sameness kind of force, and one is a separating kind of force. And they would just go on. Where, where do those things, where else are they? Okay. The separating force is going to be your kokyu. The communion force is going to be your aiki. And these things would, again, go to the next kind of Russian doll, the next concentric manifestation. And the way that you address this cosmology is the same way you would address something that appears to be totally separate. How do I reconcile form and non-form? It would be the same exact way. So in their concentric cosmology, they don't have a split as we moderns do between the body and the mind. And they don't have a split in the mind the way we do either. So they don't have a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. They just have a mind. It just works. It, it might have these, these different um, kind of yin-yang variants, but they're together and they work together. So when I look at something like Shu Hadi, there's it's not going to be a linear progression. You do this, then you do that, and then you, this. It's really both simultaneous and not simultaneous. And it's both body, and it's both mind, and in terms of mind, it's both this kind of mind and this other kind of mind. So if we go to our earlier pro podcast, we've already tied some things together. So your Budo training is the use of martial arts training to gain skill in deconstructing the ego tripartite. What is what is the what do we know about the ego tripartite? Well, you look at all these wisdom traditions. What are they telling you from these cultures? 
Well, it's a delusion. It's a delusion that gives simultaneous uh, rising to an ego attachment, a sense of identity, of personal identity. And in that, it leads to a dichotomous experience of the world. Everything is kind of set in its opposition. And with that comes a behavioral pattern of preference. And with that comes this always feeling threatened. And with that comes always feeling that you'll be fine if you could gain power over the thing that's threatening you. And it's a nonstop, it's a never-ending cycle of feeling threatened and trying to gain power. Threatened, trying to gain power. And this is, if we come to one tradition, this is the Buddha's life is suffering. This is that noble truth. Now, pre-modern societies, know, knew, they know that mind, hence the life is suffering. They know that mind. We know that mind. That makes sense to us, too. And they, of course, had systems in place to address that mind. But they had another experience of mind that, for historical reasons, we don't know as well anymore. The closest us moderns get to it would be um, maybe Jung's unconscious. So for the pre-modern person, they would have through the ecstatic experience or through the mystical experience, the very type of uh, practices and experiences that the founder of Aikido had, they would experience this unconscious mind, but that's not the word they would use. They would, they would experience this other aspect of mind. It would be, again, to stick with another East Asian theory, it would be uh, yin to the other ego tripartite, yang. And we know, for example, from the from countless textual reports, going way, way back in time, all the way even to contemporary people who are trying to experience this mind, either through psychoanalysis, dream analysis, free association, or even chemically. For the pre-modern practitioner, they know the cosmos operates in a yin-yang fashion, so this other mind, this other aspect of mind is everything the ego tripartite is not. What do we know about the ego tripartite? It's where my identity is. Uh, there's a strong attachment to that individual sense of self. It leads to a dichotomous experience of the world and a preference-based behavioral pattern. So just inverse that. 
I have the exact opposite experience. I, I lose the sense of self. The world ceases to be dichotomous. I feel no threat. There's perfect satisfaction. There's no will to power. This is the ecstatic experience. This is the divine communion. This is the mystical experience. Now, unlike modern deep psychology, again, they're not after any kind of antithetical relationship between those two mental aspects or those two mind aspects. So, for example, the second mind aspect is not any more real than the first mind aspect. And this is where you get, again, let's take one tradition, this is where you get those notions that um, everything is the Buddha nature. And there's no gap between the sacred and the profane. This is how you get the Zen monk who lives half their life in the monastery and half their life in the whorehouse. For us, though, people do not understand that. Let's, let's stick with um, Jungian psychology. There's some notion, maybe not in Jung, but definitely in his followers, that the unconscious mind, that second mind aspect, is, is just lurking there and it's being pressurized because it's being compressed and eventually it's going to get out and it's going to get you. And so what you need to do is let it out. Again, see, this is, this is just like spontaneity. It's not a selected spontaneity. This is just moving all crazy when you're trying to dance. It's not a reconciliation of form and non-form. It's just uncultivated behavior, movement, thinking. And pre-moderns aren't going to do that. And in a way, this idea is really just the ego tripartite or the first mind aspect functioning and taking over the experience of the second mind aspect, which happens quite a bit. So pre-modern pre man... For Shu, Shu is the mind of the first aspect. That is your training. That it is when you train through that ego tripartite. This is why 
training is dichotomous, dualistic. You can talk about it because language is dualistic and dichotomous. You can think about what you're doing. You can understand it. It's in principle. It makes sense. It's rational. And when I say that Aikido is a gold mine for the historian of thought, it's because when the founder lost control institutionally of his art, the ones who had control worked within this epistemic shift. What shift? It is part of a larger global movement particular to modernized nation states. A movement wherein schools of thought that work toward or for or within the second mind aspect were thoroughly discredited and removed from the systems of power and the markets of capital. This is why I call Contemporary Aikido, why I, I put that word in front of it. It's contemporary Aikido. It's not the Aikido the founder did. It's working within a different epistemic framework. And in particular, it's working within that first mind aspect. It's working within the ego tripartite Now, the downside of that is traditional Aikido, traditional Budo, the traditional technologies of self out of which Budo and Aikido originate, hold that that ego tripartite is in itself, by itself, alone a kind of disease. So if you look at modern Aikido and it's working within this ego tripartite, you're really just seeing that mind aspect reproducing an environment in which it is able to function. And of course, in which where it is functioning makes sense to it. So for a pre-modern man, that ego tripartite is incapable of the kind of performance where there's no longer observable those numbered footprints on the ground in the dancer. 
that ego tripartite is a rationalizing, thinking, intellectualizing being. It cannot perform at the speed of life. Now, as, the, as there was this global movement delegitimating that second mind aspect in the name of science, in the name of reason, in the name of the betterment of the planet, of humanity, etc., what have you. And as modern Aikido followed suit, it designed a practice that was derived from that first mind aspect and that was limited by it as well. So this is where you get modern Aikido are really form specialists and even in their Jiwaza, it's just form specialization still. And no matter how long you practice, you're never going to get that person to show the art spontaneously within an environment that is 100% live. Again, pre-modern man knew that. So they relied on that second aspect of mind. And this is ha. Through their, what we would call today, their religious trainings, which they would not call that. These are just their own technologies of self, schools of thought and practice. Well, I'm going to call them their wisdom traditions. Via their wisdom traditions... They were in touch with this second aspect of mind. This one that offered an immediacy of experience, a communion between the doer and the doing. And it's that second of aspect of mind that you need to bring into your training in order to move beyond form because that second aspect of mind is in many ways antithetical to form. You're not thinking what to do. You're just doing it. And there were all kinds of practices to bring that out. And they're not all that undifferent in many ways from the way a Jungian psychology or psychoanalysis tries to tap back into this unconscious mind. So for example, today we might have something like uh, 
free association. So you're giving a word. Oh, I want to hear the wor- a word back. The first thing that comes to your mind. In particular, I, don't, I want it to come before you have time to think about it. And this kind of reduction in time to think about it, in many ways, is precisely what is happening in a true Jiwaza setting. So what you're actually seeing from a Jungian point of view is that unconscious behavior come out. And this is why when you task that one aforementioned Nage who can do the three to four repeated techniques over and over for the same prescribed attack and you change that situation up you don't see the art come out because that the art is not existing at that level of being the art is entirely restricted to that first mind aspect the ego tripartite. They can't tap into that. Now, if you look at these traditions, there's no guarantee that everyone will be able to tap into it. You don't, in fact, they say the opposite. Chances are you will never be able to tap into it. Chances are you will stay at the first mind aspect the entirety of your life. So this is a little different because In modern Aikido, you start at forms training and then you pretend to move beyond forms training. But in pre-modern Aikido, they're kind of like, your mind is not trained enough. It may never be. You may never move beyond forms training. You end up in the same place, but one you know it and one you don't. And this is why their practices also had all kinds of additional or supplemental practices designed to give you access to this second mind aspect. This is where you get your pain reconciliation practices, your fasting, your sleep deprivation.
the ascetic practices. Now, just to give you another example of how far modern Aikido has sided with the scientific epistemy and has moved away from the one the founder was working with, how restricted they have become to this rational left brain side of being. Let's take a very another common thing we have uh, Qigong Kinshin. Today, for most people, if they've even heard of this word, and maybe they even haven't, but they do know the exercise. This is kind of, you know, you go, you'll ask people, "What is that? What is? What are you doing? How do you do that?" And they'll do the boat rowing exercise, and they put their palms together and they shake their palms. And then again, well, what does that do for you? You, you? Again, you could do that the rest of your life. You will never be spontaneous with the heart. And again, in some weird way, while the modern episteme is scientific, the idea that I can do this handshaking and this boat rowing exercise and that somehow it has some kind of potency of transformation, that in itself is really magic thinking, talismanic thinking, superstition. Because there's no catalyst they can point to. That would make sense in a secular material experience of the world. But if you go to the history of that exercise, and let's just do the near recent history, though, where it got to O-sensei. Well, one, it involved a whole bunch of other supplemental practices, as we already, as I already mentioned, fasting, sleep deprivation, music, dancing, the use of sound. And toward what end to reach that second aspect of mind? And how do you know when you reach that second aspect of mind? When the ego tripartite stops functioning. And how do you know when the ego tripartite stops functioning? When God enters you. When you become possessed by the deity. Now, we moderns will look at that and go, oh, come on, bullshit. 
And this is where Jung might be a gateway, as long as we can remember that we probably have a tendency to look at the second mind aspect from the first mind aspect as good moderns. And as long as we remember that pre-modern man and East Asian cultures in particular are looking for a particular kind of cultivation of self, not a total liberation, freedom of everything. You're not just wiggling your body out there and I'm going to call you a dancer. They're not. So it's not about letting that second aspect of mind go wild, crazy. Again, this is where you would have the critique of EQ, a Zen master, against the other people claiming to be Zen masters during his time when he would say, Mushin does not mean you're a jackass because there were a bunch of people acting like idiots, acting like they had no mind, acting like they were totally free. And so, adolescently, rebelling against every convention, that is not what the way is. It's more an integration of the two mind aspects or interpenetrability of the two aspects. A fusion of the two. It's a yin-yang world. But all of those supplemental practices are all time-proven ways. Not all that different from free association or dream analysis. Time-proven ways of moving beyond your rational mind, of moving beyond that ego tripartite. So Buddha has almost always had those supplemental practices until very recently. But ha, ha training is where that mind is engaged. It doesn't matter what technique you do. What matters is whether the technique you do is dichotomous in nature 
is intellectually preferenced, etc. So you must discover ways in your training of bringing this second mind aspect in onto the mat. And the primary way that Budo does it is through fear. Because in fear, it like in free association, we see, we bring the unconscious mind to the surface. And it doesn't take much to do that. But as you get better, it does take more and more. Now, as we said, these wisdom traditions, they're not looking for just a total freedom, a total absence of form. They, they, they're wisdom traditions, so they have a preference. They have a concentric nature between what they can reason is sound and also how they use that second mind aspect to add to that soundness being a matter of being, not a matter of memorizing or thinking or contemplating. But they don't want the gap between the being and the sound reasoning. So the sage, for example acts in perfect accordance with the way of heaven. But there is no in intention or intellectual aiming to do that. That's the difference between Shu and Ha. And it's when you can do that, when you reconciling both form or the first mind aspect and non-form or the second mind aspect, when you can do that, that is when you have D. And that is when your spontaneity looks like Aikido. Now, this model of Shuhari, there, therefore, is not a kind of gradient lesson plan. It's actually a map of the mind or of the body-mind. And over the centuries, they focused in on some key points. Where, where, where do I see this two mind aspect integration? And this too is not often understood. 
it has a lot of the reason for that is that first mind aspect that has come to dominate the modern world is it has a very difficult time understanding this they want to go linear they want to go binary and so they talk uh, they talk and understand this process in terms of states So, in other words, you're going to be in a shoe state, and then you're going to be in a ha state, and this is not true. That 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 would be like pointing out to the world and go, "This is pure yin, and and it'll never be yang," and we, that's not true. You're violated yin yang theory. There's a constant in integration. And that's why the shapes look like they look. That's why the dot is there with a little bit of the other. And that's why they are in transition. So where is that curved line between the yin and the yang? Or where, you know, that's what you, they're looking at. Where, what is that? And when they did that, they didn't come up with a state. They came up with a skill. Now, no, no, there's got to be a state. No, there's not a state. They knew that already. Nobody, nobody ever can stay in an ecstatic state. They observe that all the time. Nor would you want to in a yin-yang world. What you want is this interdependency or this interpenetration or integration. Just like you don't just want Aiki. You can't have just Aiki. You need to have Kokyu. You can't just have a communion. You need to have a separation. But what is that, that wavy line between these two mind aspects? It's a skill. What skill? It's a skill of release. And that's why you hear that word in many, many ways, many variations of it throughout history. Let go. So really what your D state is, as I said, is that reconciliation of form and non-form. But what is it really? It is the skill. 
of walking that wavy line between the yin and the yang. The skill of letting go. So if you go back to the aforementioned Nage and you t- you're going to have Uke come in with this crazy arm cross, overextended shoulder push slash grab attempt. And you restrict that Nage from doing those three to four techniques. The reason why they can't move is because they can't let go of those four techniques or they can't let go of the initially prescribed attack. This is what pre-modern people observed. If you could let go of it, it, it doesn't matter. It's the attached mind, the attached body mind that's causing the problem. And this is why Ikkyo, from the first mind aspect, is an inhibitor to spontaneity, but also why a variation on that Ikkyo is nothing different than that same inhibitor. It's just a new form because the mind will not let go of it, will not release it, it will not break up that ego tripartite. It will not let the second aspect come in. So unlike Buddhahood being a state that you reach once and for all, which is going to be very hard to explain why the Buddha kept practicing as he did after he reached awakening. It's the skill of letting those two mind aspects interact with each other to that degree of integration or balance or harmony. So you don't let it go so far that you're just out there wiggling on the dance floor as if you've had no training whatsoever. But you release the first mind aspect at a level to which you release the second mind aspect Or you could say you hold on to the first mind aspect at a level that you hold on to the second mind aspect that allows you to reconcile form and non-form, allowing you to do a spontaneity that is Aikido, that is Takemusu Aiki. Now this is precisely what you do when you do... uh, your, your Aiki adhesions, the energy is coming in your body and you release Uke's energy at a level equal to theirs. 
And in a concentric worldview, this makes perfect sense. Of course you do. You don't, you don't let your, your second mind aspect run wild. That is no less destructive than letting your first mind aspect run wild. Both are unwise. Both are out of alignment with the wisdom tradition. So in terms of training, especially as good moderns, you really don't have to worry about the first mind aspect. That's, that's going to be your problem right off the bat. All form is going to come in and it's going to be very difficult to release ourselves from that form because that ego tripartite is functioning through the form. It is so difficult and that is precisely why you see nobody spontaneous in Aikido today and why there is an emphasis on form. The art has been bred of this culture to reinforce this culture. And why you see the GUAZA you see, which is just more form training. Okay, you don't have to worry about that one. You do have to worry about how to tap into that second mind aspect. Because we as a culture, were ill-equipped for it. They were even ill-equipped in O-sensei's day, to tell you the truth, which had a lot to do with the government crackdowns on Omoto-kyo. Because even though he, he had a foot in the pre-modern epistemology of his times, he was on that paradigm shift in thought and practice. And this is where there, there is a limit to Jung. Because while they have techniques... Well, let's just stick with his terminology. As they have techniques like, for example, free association or, or dream analysis to gain some insight into the unconscious, they don't know what to do with it. And this is where you, you, know, you get those horror stories that um, were mentioned in the... Um, the BBC video I recently posted on our Facebook page. 
what traditional cultures did is they had already templates into and for that second mind aspect. And in a way, these are very much akin to uh, people who go visit shamans today. And uh, the shaman is going to be a kind of guide, but in their guiding for your ecstatic experience, they're putting a template over it. So that it's understood in a particular way. What way? A wise way. A way connected to an established wisdom tradition. Making it different from insanity or schizophrenia or a bad trip. In this way, the religiosity of O-sensei is very relevant. So when, when he did his kami possession ritual practices... It's not like he just any emptying of self happened. It's not just like any tapping into the unconscious mind happened. It's not just like any kind of shutdown of the first mind aspect happened. Not just any God possessed him. He became the Kami that stands on the bridge between heaven and earth. And this notion of heaven, man, earth is ancient. And it is concentric with earth, first mind aspect, heaven, second mind aspect, man in the middle, in possession and capable of both. And when he saw himself as this kami and he sees himself as doing the will to heaven, it's that template on that second mind aspect that allows it to be used and harnessed in a constructive, positive, wisdom, tradition-based way. He's not just tripping out. Modern Aikido has very little access to these practices, let alone an understanding of these practices.
let alone the problem that they tried to solve. Again, when you look at modern Aikido, you either have people very happy doing forms over and over and over, or people strangely believing in some sort of talismanic power where that form would actually somehow transform them into a freedom of form. Or you have people trying to do it but being entirely unsuccessful at it. Because they never gain as then they never gain access to that second mind aspect. Or if they do, in rare cases, they have no template for it, such that they actually achieve that the state. Not just any old spontaneity, not just any old freedom of form. But Aikido spontaneity, Takamusa Aiki. And along with that difficulty and those obstacles, we only see more of that first mind aspect which dominates our own age. We only see that. continuing to function and change the art more and more away from what the founder did. So for example, just as one example, in pre-modern training, the teacher, the mentor, the abbot, the master, the hermit, the sage, etc. was very important. That person could recognize Ha training, Ha level performance, whereas someone else couldn't. That person knew the way into that second mind aspect. That person knew the template to give that second mind aspect shape and wisdom. Now, when all you're doing forms and on your only end result is forms, you don't really need that teacher. You don't need the teacher at all. You, you can learn the forms on a video. Now you want to go, oh, you need to feel the teacher's technique. You're still just doing a form. Who cares? Look at the Brazilian jiu-jitsu market. You can learn an infinite amount of techniques on video. But it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do them. But you can learn them. You can do them under controlled situation, in a controlled environment. 
something not moving at speed of life, something that does not require your second mind aspect to kick in, something not in the face of fear. It's the same for Aikido. Or if you go to the seminar model, how much do you really feel that Shihan's technique? Is it really enough to transform you? The thing is, the first mind aspect, that ego tripartite, interprets everything within that function. So you never really purely experiencing the teacher's technique, you're experiencing a filtration of that technique. Which is why after feeling it and you do the next rep, you're not, it doesn't feel like the teacher's technique. It feels what you think theirs feels like. But I think if you go back to the, the pre-modern problem, which is how do we get the teaching to operate at the level of being, to where the observer can't distinguish the two. That's what you want. That's a D. That's Takamusaiki. And that is where we should all be headed. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S E N S H I N. C-E-N-T-E-R dot com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.